Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Thursday, October 15th. In today's news, as Amy Coney Barrett finishes her time in the hot seat, Democrats acknowledge she will be confirmed. Three weeks from the election, President Trump and his allies are going after Hunter Biden once again. And the Treasury Secretary acknowledges a coronavirus relief deal before the election seems very unlikely. But first, the big idea. In August, a fresh-faced Republican activist named Charlie Kirk stepped into the spotlight at a closed-door gathering of leading conservatives and shared his delight about an impact of the coronavirus pandemic, the disruption of American universities. So many campuses had closed, Kirk said, that up to half a million left-leaning students probably wouldn't vote. The audience cheered as the 26-year-old said that. This gathering in Northern Virginia was organized by the Council for National Policy, known as the CNP, a little-known and highly secretive group that has served for decades as a hub for a nationwide network of conservative activists and the major donors who support them. Members include Ginny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, and Leonard Leo from the Federalist Society, an outside advisor to President Trump who has helped raise literally hundreds of millions of dollars from undisclosed donors to support the nominations of very conservative federal judges. Dozens of hours of videos from CNP meetings were provided to my colleague, Bob O'Hara. They cover CNP meetings over three days in February and three more days in August. They offer an unusual inside view of the obsessions and fears of participants at a pivotal moment in the conservative movement. And there's a lot on the tapes that's quite different from what they say in public. The president of the group's executive committee, Bill Walton, said at the August 21st session held at a Ritz-Carlton in the D.C. suburbs that they're engaged in a, quote, spiritual battle between good versus evil. And he added, quote, we have to do everything we can to win. Tom Fitton, the president of Judicial Watch, called on the audience to find ways to prevent mail-in ballots from being sent out to voters. At the February meetings, attendees discussed plans for seeking an advantage in the upcoming vote. Two said the right will begin what's called ballot harvesting, a controversial technique that involves the collection and delivery of sealed absentee ballots from churches and other institutions, a practice Trump was claiming publicly at the time was terrible. Ralph Reed, the chairman of the nonprofit Faith and Freedom Coalition, told the audience that conservatives are embracing ballot harvesting. J. Christian Adams, a former Justice Department official who now runs a charity called the Public Interest Legal Foundation, urged the activists not to worry about the criticism that might come their way, saying, quote, be not afraid of the accusations that you're a voter suppressor, you're a racist, and so forth. Bob asked a bunch of legal experts to watch these videos. Marcus Owens, a lawyer who ran the exempt organizations division of the IRS from 1990 to 2000, told him that participants' comments on the videos raise potential issues of compliance with election laws and charity rules. He said he's never seen anything like this, let alone on videotape and live, referring to the overt partisan coordination among leaders of supposedly nonpartisan nonprofits. Some participants spoke of a CNP-associated delegation that meets every week with White House officials. They said that this group, 
the Conservative Action Project has installed or helped to install reliable loyalists to run various federal agencies, and that they coordinate outside messages with nonprofit organizations to advance the administration's agenda. Paul Teller, who's a White House employee and the director of strategic initiatives for Vice President Pence, told the audience in a closed-door speech in August that it's, quote, this little secretive huddle that meets every Wednesday morning. Kelly Shackelford was introduced as the CNP's vice president and leader of something called the First Liberty Institute, another organization registered as a tax-exempt charity. He bragged about extensive behind-the-scenes coordination by his group and other nonprofit organizations to influence the White House's selection of federal judges. He boasted on tape that he was part of an effort to, quote, literally open a whole operation on judicial nominations and vetting adding that they poured millions of dollars into this to make sure the president picks the right judges. Shackelford was among the people who pressed the president to nominate Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. And now he's among the nonprofit leaders coordinating closely with the White House to push her confirmation through before the election. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this Thursday. Number one, Senate Republicans predicted smooth sailing for Barrett after she concluded two days of testimony last night. The committee will hear today from opponents and supporters of Barrett. Trump's nominee to fill the seat previously held by the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg is on a fast track for confirmation. Even as they acknowledged that it's a fait accompli, frustrated Democrats said that Barrett did nothing to alleviate their fears that once on the court, She will undermine precedents on abortion rights, birth control, and LGBTQ rights, including the ability to marry, not to mention the Affordable Care Act. Senator Dick Blumenthal, a Democratic from Connecticut, said he was stunned that Barrett repeatedly said it would be improper for her to endorse the court's 1965 holding in Griswold v. Connecticut, which struck down a law banning married couples from using contraception. This is important because that decision speaks to privacy concerns and was used to provide the legal underpinning to recognize a right to abortion. Blumenthal noted that several members of the current Supreme Court did not hesitate, though, to endorse Griswold during their confirmation hearings, including Chief Justice John Roberts and Justices Clarence Thomas and Sam Alito, all appointed by Republican presidents. Pressed on Griswold, Barrett called it shockingly unlikely that any state or federal lawmakers will reinstate bans on birth control. Our legal reporters, Bob Barnes, Sungman Kim, and Ann Marimo, note that Barrett's evasiveness on the birth control precedent was all the more surprising because the judge was willing to say that the court reached the right conclusions in Brown v. Board, which outlawed the separate but equal doctrine in 1954, and in Loving v. Virginia which legalized interracial marriage in the 1960s. And yet, she demurred when asked whether she accepts the precedent created by the court's 2003 ruling in Lawrence v. Texas, which struck down laws criminalizing homosexual conduct, as well as the court's 2015 ruling that said same-sex couples could not be denied the right to marry. Barrett also wouldn't say whether the president can pardon himself or his family members for past or future crimes. Later, Under questioning from Kamala Harris, Barrett declined to say whether climate change is real and a threat to human health, calling it a, quote, very contentious matter. 
Barrett also declined to tell Cory Booker, the Democratic senator from New Jersey, whether she thought it was morally wrong to separate migrant children from their parents to deter immigration into the United States, as the Trump administration did. Number two. Trump's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, and his former top advisor, Steve Bannon, helped make public private materials purported to belong to Joe Biden's son, Hunter, in an attempt to swing support to the struggling incumbent. The Washington Post was unable to verify the authenticity of the alleged emails and other correspondence that the New York Post published yesterday, which the tabloid says came from the younger Biden's computer and hard drive. The New York Post, which is owned by conservative media tycoon Rupert Murdoch, said its report was based on materials that it said it heard about from Bannon and that were provided to them by Giuliani. The Wednesday report did not markedly advance what's already known about Hunter Biden's foreign business dealings, other than to suggest that at one point he gave a Ukrainian business colleague a, quote, opportunity to meet his father. But the Biden campaign says the vice president's schedule shows no such meeting ever took place. And Hunter Biden's attorney told our fact checker Glenn Kessler that this purported meeting never happened. My colleagues Matt Viser, Paul Sonny, and Annie Linsky report that the tabloid story was met with skepticism, particularly from social media companies that sought to limit the spread of the news. Several intelligence experts also cast doubt on the report and the stated origins of the hard drive purported to belong to Hunter Biden, saying that it had the characteristics of a carefully planned information warfare operation, perhaps by the Russians, designed to affect our election. John Paul McIsaac, who said he owns a computer repair shop in Wilmington, Delaware, said yesterday that the laptop in question was one of three damaged computers brought into his shop in April 2019. McIsaac, who described himself as legally blind, said that he was almost certain the customer was Hunter Biden. Annie, who has been camped out in Wilmington to cover Biden for us, spent several hours yesterday afternoon in McIsaac's repair shop talking to him as customers came and went. He told her that after he saw the contents on the hard drive, he contacted at least three members of Congress, whom he would not name. He also said he contacted the FBI through an intermediary, whom he also would not name. He said the agents initially told him they didn't want to take possession of the hard drive and instead made a copy, but then returned later in the year with a subpoena to take it. In late 2019, before he handed the equipment to the FBI, McIsaac, who says he's fiscally conservative and socially liberal, made a copy of the contents of the hard drive. He said he grew frustrated that the contents of the laptop had never become public, so he contacted Giuliani over the summer. Number three. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin said last night that a new economic relief bill is unlikely before the election, suggesting that Democrats are unwilling to give Trump a victory. Mnuchin made his comments after an hour-long conversation with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Meanwhile, Trump continues to hit the campaign trail. He had a huge rally last night in Des Moines, Iowa. And First Lady Melania Trump revealed in a blog post for the White House website that their son, Barron, who's 14, also tested positive after she and the president did. But she says that all three of them have now tested negative. She wrote that Barron exhibited no symptoms and only had minimal issues, and she only had minimal issues, though they hit her, she explained, all at once. The first lady likened it to a roller coaster in the days after she tested positive. She said she experienced body aches, a cough, and headaches, and felt extremely tired most of the time. Sadly, she's not alone. The D.C. region caseload hit a two-month high yesterday. Our seven-day rolling average here for New Daily cases is past 1,800, the highest since early August. 
In nine states, the rolling average of hospitalizations from coronavirus complications has risen by double digits over the past week. The largest jumps were recorded in Wyoming and Montana. Several European countries continue to set records for their number of new cases as well. Germany, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Italy, Portugal, and Slovenia all had their highest single-day case numbers. France's Emmanuel Macron announced a new curfew as infections rise there. People across the country will have to stay home between 9 p.m. and 6 a.m. starting Saturday for at least four weeks. Macron said he sympathizes with young people right now. As he put it, it's hard to be 20 in 2020. Back on this side of the Atlantic, Anthony Fauci was on CBS last night and urged Americans to, quote, bite the bullet and consider canceling their Thanksgiving plans. The nation's top infectious disease expert said the surging case numbers in many areas of our country may make it unwise to hold large family gatherings this year, particularly if elderly relatives or out-of-state travel are involved. Fauci added that his own three children will not be coming home to Washington for Thanksgiving because his age puts him at an elevated risk. Thanksgiving will look very different for most of us this year. But I want to let you know, a month or so early, I guess, that I'm thankful for you. Thank you for welcoming me into your homes, your cars, and letting me tag along as you jog. I appreciate you, and it's good folks like you who deepen my faith and confidence that we're going to get through this dark chapter in our national history, and we will emerge stronger together. And that's The Daily 202 for Thursday, October 15th. I'm James Hellman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. The Daily 202 is brought to you by Cleveland Clinic and the new podcast, Caring for Tomorrow. I'm Joan London, the host of the series. Please join us as we explore the challenges and solutions that are defining the future of healthcare. Look for us wherever you get your podcasts.